I'm so glad that all of you are here this morning, and I hope you're making plans to be in the next two Bible classes, the combined classes that Rick will be teaching. These are very significant days in the life of the Richland Hills Church. It has been my joy to know a lot about this church from its very beginning. It has been my pleasure to know every man who has ever served as an elder in the Richland Hills Church since its beginning more than 50 years ago. They have been fine men of God, honorable men of God. And as I presently serve as an elder, I feel like I'm in some very heavyweight company. And speaking of that, the elders of the Richland Hills Church are a group of men that I respect tremendously. And they are fully and completely an endorsement of what we are now doing. There is unity in our eldership. And we're so thankful for that. I've never worked with a group of men that I've admired or respected more than the men that I work with now. We pray together. We study together. We sometimes agonize together. And we recognize our weaknesses and shortcomings. But it is a privilege and a joy to work with this eldership. And I know the history of this church and by the way, I've spent 17 years with the pulpit minister of this church, and I love Rick Atchley. Rick Atchley is a man of God. He's a man of sincerity, of wisdom. He is a man who gets into the passages of Scripture and reveals great truths. Rick is not like a lot of people. He's not going to chase you down across the atrium and give you a big bear hug. That's in my department. But I tell you, he loves people, and he cares about people. And I haven't worked next to him for 17 years without knowing and respecting and greatly admiring this man of God. And he is the right man to lead us in this study. And since I have already am aware and familiar with what he's going to be teaching in these three weeks, I want you to know he has my absolute endorsement and the endorsement of our full eldership as well. Rick is a man who cares about the Bible and what it tells us. He never steps outside the authority of the Scriptures. I've listened to him for 17 years, and I listened closely to this man of God. And this series is going to be a tremendous thing for us. It has already blessed my life immeasurably, and I thought I knew a lot about the subject. The Richland Hills Church of Christ will be blessed in this. Will you keep your minds and hearts open? Will you be receptive to the will of God and the passages that will be investigated and discussed? And may God lead us in this church in paths of righteous service in harmony with the will of God. Thank you. You know, I asked John as someone who as much as anyone knows the 50-year history of this church, to just make a statement about this series. I didn't know he was going to say such nice things about me. I've already asked him to preach my funeral. And uh, excited about that. You know what? Some people are still finding a seat. I'm going to ask you to stand up and scoot in. Stand up and scoot in. While you're doing that, we'll sing one song. So everybody stand up and scoot in. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it, and be glad in it. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Okay, and before you sit down, turn to a neighbor and say, you look like you need grace as much as I do. (laughs) Well, thank you for changing your normal Sunday schedule to be a part of a special three-week series that we will be having here in this room today, next Sunday, and again on December the 17th. We announced a couple of Sundays ago 
our intention to begin a third service next spring on Saturday evenings. And that service would include the use of instrumental music in worship. Let me give you a little background. Uh, This is fun to be all together and just to have two services on Sunday morning, but you can already see the issues we have. In the next service, we won't be able to sit everyone. We face the possibility of having guests and visitors have to go to the FLC and sit and watch a screen because the fire marshal won't let us put everybody in here that's going to be here. Uh, People are going to come and try to put their children in the nursery, and it's going to be overcrowded. And this is not healthy. And we've had this situation now for years. It's a good problem to have. And obviously, unless you want to spend $20 million and make this room bigger, it's smarter and better stewardship to find a way to have at least three services. And we've tried now for four or five years to find a way to have three services. We tried having three services on Sunday morning. And then we tried having a third service on Sunday afternoon. And the church met all of those changes with great uh, sacrifice, but we know it frustrated you because the only way we could get people to move to a new service at a less optimum time was to manipulate Bible classes, to get you to have to move because your Bible class was being moved, and you didn't always appreciate that, and we completely understand that. But there was no other way to get you to go to a service but to do that. Why would you go to a service that's exactly like the other services at a less optimum time unless we could find a way to make you go? We don't believe that's healthy and we don't believe that's the future of this church. We're going to begin a third service. It's going to be on Saturday. It's going to be a different service. We're not going to manipulate any more Bible classes. We're simply going to create a situation here where everybody can choose the service they want to go to. And we believe we're going to create a situation for us to do what we think God wants this and every Bible-believing church to do. And that is to grow by reaching more people who need Christ. I want to show you a picture. Just so you'll know that this situation wasn't entered lightly. There you see me in a study with the elders. We didn't make this decision on a Tuesday and announce it on Sunday. This has been a part of about a three-year journey the leadership has been on. There was much study, much prayer, and even a long season of fasting that we entered into together to determine what we thought was God's leading on the next uh, era of our church. And we've become convicted, and as John has mentioned, we are quite united that this is the right next step for the Richland Hills Church. Now, we're going to try to be as above board as we can about this. Obviously, for the next three Sundays, I'm going to be teaching on why this is a good thing for us to do. Also, next Sunday the 10th and next Sunday after the 17th, at 2 o'clock to about 4 o'clock, I'm going to be available along with other elders Uh, in 109 to visit with anyone who wants to come up and get questions answered or to talk to us about any concerns that you have. We're going to take this teaching that you're about to hear. It will be on the website, hopefully by Tuesday. And every teaching of the next three Sundays will be on the website. And then after the final teaching, we're going to create it in a DVD format so that you can take it And have it and share it with anyone you want to share it with. We're not going to hide what we're saying or what we're doing. I would rather people actually hear what we're doing and saying instead of hear about what we're doing and saying. So we're trying to be as above board as we can. Now there are two questions that have to get answered. One is, is it biblically acceptable to worship God with instruments? Now, just so you'll know where we're going, I'm going to tackle that question head on. Next Sunday, bring your Bible and something to take notes on because we are going to look at a lot of Scripture. A second question, though, is even if it's biblically appropriate, is it right for this church at this time? Just because you're free to do something doesn't mean you have to or ought to do something. So in the third session, we'll answer a missional question. Is it an effective strategy for our church at this time to have worship options? And we'll deal with that. Also, on the third Sunday, I'll take about 15 minutes and I will deal with the whole issue of worship on Saturday, including 
communion on Saturday. And so though that's kind of how it looks. So what I want to do today is set a very important context for this study and establish what I think are some important principles for our future and I want to hit head on what I think are some underlying fears that all of us are wrestling with as we consider the days ahead. I want now to read to you a devotional by John Wooden. John Wooden, as you know, was an extraordinarily successful basketball coach at UCLA. At the age of 92, he wrote a book of devotional thoughts, and I want to read one of them. Although there's no progress without change, not all change is progress. I think young people want to be different, but being different doesn't necessarily mean progress. As a rule, youth have lots of ideas, but they want to make too many changes. When we get older, however, we tend to become content with the status quo, and we forget that there's no progress without change. I used a low post offense for six years when I had seven-foot sitters Lou Alcindor and Bill Walton on my teams. But for the other 34 years, I had shorter teams and used the high post offense. Within both systems, I made changes and variations. We won national championships with strong forwards, and we won with strong guards. And, of course, we also won championships when we had our two fine centers. In each case, I adjusted the offense accordingly because there's no progress without change. When I coached in high school, I taught the two-hand, underhand free throw. I still believe it's the best way to shoot them. But I changed when I coached in college because the players hadn't been brought up shooting them that way. And then he says, personally, it took me two years of grieving before I was ready to get on with my life after losing my wife, Nellie. I had to change and move on. Also, I've been fairly private about my faith over the years. This book is evidence of change in that area, too. Even at 92, there is no progress without change. Now, this church has a healthy 50-year history of being able to embrace change. For that, we have been labeled by some a progressive church. I want you to know I am thankful for that label. Who wants to be at a church that is making no progress? For 50 years, the leaders of this church have been able to delineate between the never-changing gospel and the always changing ways of sharing it. We know when to be either or, and we know when to be both and, and it is time for us to make that courageous distinction again. Let me explain what I mean when I say we need to be a both and church. I believe too often dialogue about tough issues is diminished Because the debate is couched in such a way as to force people to choose between two poorly framed options. Let me uh, illustrate from the world of politics. Are you in support of tax cuts or helping the poor? You see, the way I frame the question, it's an either-or issue. Either you want tax cuts or you want to help the poor. It's not possible that you would like both. Should our military be in Iraq? Or should we be trying to find bin Laden? See, again, the way I frame the question, it's an either or. I have precluded the possibility that you might endorse both strategies. I think this is one reason why rarely do we have healthy political dialogue in our system because the way we frame the questions prohibits healthy communication. We do the same thing in the theological realm. Let me give you some examples. Was Jesus human or divine? Now, is that an either-or question or a both-and question? Is God sovereign or do humans have free will. Christians have argued and fought and slandered each other for centuries because they say that's an either-or question. They can't accept it could be both and. Our Muslim and Jewish friends ask us all the time, is God one 
or three? Make up your mind. And we say, yes. <laughs> a young man in Abilene recently asked me this question after challenging me to a three-night debate. He said, do you believe there are Christians outside of the church of Christ, or do you believe baptism is essential? Now, do you see how he asked the question? Because to him, it's either or. He believes either only the church of Christ contains all the Christians of the world, or you don't believe in baptism. See, I don't think that's an either or question. Now, that's not to imply there's no absolute truth. There's a definite either or aspect to the Christian faith. I'll give you some examples. Is Jesus Lord or Caesar? That's not a both and question. Will you serve God or mammon? I think Jesus made it pretty clear that's not both and. Is Jesus the only way to God? Or are there other ways? Many liberal denominations now insist that Jesus is a way to God, but not the only way. They think that's a both and question. I think it's an either or question. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Jesus. Are we saved by grace or by works? Many think that's a both-and question. God did part of the process of salvation, but man has to do the rest and do it right or he can't be saved. I say you were saved either by the grace of God or you're not saved at all. You see, the way we ask the question is important. And here's typically what happens. In liberal churches, they take either-or questions and make them both-and. And so they will say, Jesus is a way to God, but not the only way. Legalistic churches tend to take both and questions and make them either or, like that young man in Abilene. So what do leaders full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit need to do? They need to be able to discern between either or and both and questions. That's what we're going to try to do the next three weeks. Because I have a question for you now. Can Christians worship God acceptably with instruments? Or is vocal praise alone acceptable to God? Now, I was raised that that was an either-or question. Either you worship God only with the voice, or you didn't worship God acceptably at all. With all my heart, I believe that is a both-and question. But you need to know before we go further how far I had to journey to reach that conclusion. I was raised on the anti-instrument position. I was taught that as a young man. I heard many sermons that taught that to worship with instruments not only was sinful, but potentially soul-damning sinful. I don't know if everyone at the little church I was raised in believed that. I know one lady did because one Sunday after we preached another sermon that instrumental music is sinful, a visiting family got up and left and said they would never come back. And the woman boasted how happy she was that a family like that would never visit our church again. That was my roots. I believed it so strongly that when I went to ACU and I was in the student senate, I voted against The school hosting Christian concerts. Now, I still think my logic had some merit. The argument was, that's not really worship. We're just going to have entertainment. And I said, if you are singing about God and you're singing to God and it's not worship, then you're taking his name in vain. But I believe so strongly in the anti-instrument position. I opposed Christian artists 
holding concerts on the campus of ACU when I was in school. The first few years that I preached, there are on tape sermons where I bemoan the fact that young people don't know that it's wrong to worship with instruments. I understand the position. I've been there. Now, through time and study, I came to leave the anti-instrument position. I became an advocate of the pro-acapella position. And they are different. And you need to know, I greatly appreciate acapella praise. I always want Richard Hill's Church of Christ to value its contribution to congregational worship. And you need to hear this loud and clear. There is no intention of this leadership to force anyone to worship any other way if that is their choice. We intend to continue to have outstanding a cappella worship at Richmond Hills. But I firmly believe if Richmond Hills is to be most faithful to God's word and to Christ's mission, we must become a both and church with regard to instrumental and a cappella praise. Now, I do so knowing full well how emotionally charged this issue is to some. And so my task the next three Sundays is to make a case for why we should add instrumental music to our worship options, acknowledging as I do so that we enjoy a cappella praise at Richland Hills, that it is done here with excellence and will continue to be done with excellence. The summit will continue to be an a cappella service. We simply want on our weekend services to be a both and church where people have choices for their preferred worship option. I know in the next three weeks I am going to be given a fair and impartial hearing. That is the history of this church. But I thought perhaps considering some history of the early church might be helpful as we launch our study. And so open your Bibles to Acts 15, and we will read from there in a moment. I need to set the context. The issue that we are discussing these days, as major as we might think it is, absolutely pales in comparison to the issue the early church had to deal with. The Jew-Gentile question, particularly as it related to circumcision. Now, you need to understand that circumcision was the identity marker of the people of God. Not for a hundred years, but for thousands of years. Circumcision was the mark that told you who you were. It identified your heritage. And the early Christians were Jews. And the question of should we continue to circumcise wasn't even on the radar. But then Paul and others began to do mission work in primarily Gentile regions. Regions that didn't even have synagogues or God-fearers in the cities. And they began to bring into the kingdom of God many of a Gentile background who didn't know Moses. And this raised a great question in the early church. Is this okay? Now... I believe there were two factors going on here. One was political. You've got to understand, there was tremendous persecution of Jewish Christians by their Jewish neighbors. Particularly over this question. You know that when Stephen began to preach in Acts 7, that God's economy might go past the temple. Persecution broke out. And Stephen and Philip and people like him were persecuted. Stephen was murdered. Philip and others were driven out. Paul says in Galatians 6, the reason they promote circumcision is to avoid persecution for the cost of Christ. But there was also, I think, a theological factor. You've got to understand how excited you had to be if you were a Jew and you came to believe in Jesus. The Messiah you had longed for all your life had come. Who was this Jesus? He was a Jew. 
He was of the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of David. He was circumcised. He spoke Hebrew. He knew the Hebrew scriptures. He fulfilled the Hebrew prophecies. He attended the synagogue. He quoted the Torah. They called him rabbi. And if you're a Jewish Christian, you are wondering how on earth can you understand Jesus and you've never even heard of Moses? How do you get to Calvary and you don't even know about Sinai? And so, you got to understand the issue was not can Gentiles be saved? They can be saved. The issue is do they have to be circumcised to be saved? Do they have to go through the screen door of Moses to get in the front door of Jesus? That's the question. And it is a huge question. Now, that's the context for Acts 15. It says, The men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be Saved. Okay, just think for a second the missiological implications of this theology. Go into all the world, circumcising and baptizing is what they're saying. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers... To go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now you got to know Paul is not confused about the answer. Paul knows the answer. In fact, this is when Paul wrote Galatians. And Galatians makes it clear what the answer is. I know he wrote it now because in Galatians Paul mentions every trip he'd ever made to Jerusalem. And he doesn't mention this trip. And he's establishing his integrity and his apostleship. So he fired off Galatians. Gets with Barnabas, let's go down to Jerusalem and let's settle this once and for all. Verse 3. So the church sent them on the way as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. They told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the brothers very glad. See, Paul knows they've been converted. Paul's not in doubt about this. Verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Again, it's not can they be Christians. It's we have to make them Jews before they can become Christians. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion... Peter got up and addressed them. All right, already you know the Holy Spirit is at work. This is the only time in the Bible Peter waited after much discussion before he spoke. (laughs) He addressed them, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. And the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Notice how each man has his own emphasis. Peter is making a case from history. He's saying, fellas, we've been down this road. You remember the Cornelius story? God poured the Holy Spirit out on Cornelius before I had finished my sermon. You know that. Then Paul makes a case from ministry. He says, brothers... If I was preaching a false gospel, why was the Holy Spirit showing up and doing miracles to endorse it? Why is God endorsing my gospel with miracle power if my gospel is not complete? Peter makes a case from history, Paul from ministry, and now James, the brother of Jesus, is going to make one from prophecy. Verse 13, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. 
Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written, and he's going to quote straight from the book of Amos. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. I want you to try to understand the significance of what we just read. The early church took a question that for centuries had been either or. Either you're circumcised or you're not a part of the people of God. Circumcision is our identity. It's how we know who we are. It is our heritage. They took a question that for centuries had been either or. And they concluded it was a both and issue. They didn't disparage circumcision. They didn't deny their freedom to anyone to be circumcised if they wanted to be. They simply said, we cannot bind on everyone the right of circumcision. It is a both and question. What wisdom. I have learned that in every single church problem, there is a simple and wrong solution. And the simple wrong solution is to make a law that restricts freedom in Christ and says everybody has to live under this law. The early church didn't do that. And I tell you what, all of us Gentiles wouldn't be here today if they didn't. Now, what principles can we glean from this story that are appropriate to our own situation? Let me share with you four. Here's number one. Please notice there was clear and respectful communication. Did you notice in the entire chapter the absence of name-calling, of labeling, of slandering? Nobody's motives were impugned. Nobody's character was assassinated. If your position is so weak that you have to assassinate character to support it, your position needs to be rethought. James says, verse 13, listen to me. It was his way of saying, give me your respect. Giving leaders respect is non-negotiable in the New Testament. And you know, God's Word is so powerful. Every time you read it, you see something new. I saw something just this week rereading this text I hadn't seen earlier when I taught this material with the elders. Did you notice who made the decision in Acts 15? In verse 2 and in verse 6, it says twice, the apostles and the elders met to consider the question. This decision was not taken to the whole church and said, let's all have a vote. Who says circumcision doesn't have to happen anymore? They didn't do that. Some people, I think, believe the role of elders is to be election poll uh, counselors, to stand there at the election and make sure the election is fair. Nowhere in the Bible is that the role of leaders. God expects leaders to lead. And he expects the body to honor their doing so. And as much as possible, leaders need to communicate openly and honestly about the changes they're considering. Because people know change is necessary, but they hate surprises. And that's why we're trying to be as upfront as we can be about what we're doing and why. We want you to know what's changing. We want you to know why it's changing. We want you to know what things will never change. And I can assure you in this series, I will make it clear what things are never going to change. But I'll just go ahead and tell you now, there has never been a single moment's discussion about changing the name of this church or our affiliation with churches of Christ. That's not changing. Those are legitimate concerns. I'll do my best to deal with them. But please notice, 
There was clear and respectful communication. People believed the best about their leadership and showed them honor. Number two, the believers listened with an open mind. Now, this is an amazing thing that should not be taken lightly. Notice the verbs that are in Acts 15. Verbs like they welcomed them, they considered, they listened, they became silent. Imagine how hard it must have been for the Jewish Christians to suspend their generations-old inclinations and fairly consider new thoughts. You ever talked with someone who said, I don't need to hear what he's got to say. My mind's already made up. I'm sure some people in Jerusalem were tempted to think that. But the Bible says they welcomed, they listened, they considered. They entertained Paul and Peter and James with unbiased objectivity. And they looked for the leading of God in their arguments. And this kind of maturity requires an open-mindedness that can only be the work of the Holy Spirit. And I just have to stop right here and say, in the last two or three weeks, as the word of our announcement has gotten out in this church, and I have watched you respond and heard from so many of you, I am just again amazed at how mature this church is, how fair this church is. How grace-centered this church is. And how open to the leading of the Spirit this church is. I always had a high opinion of this church. But it's never been higher than it is right now. Please notice number three. They turned to the Word of God for confirmation. Notice how James based his argument straight out of the book of Amos. They arrived at a conclusion only because they were convinced it was biblical. But would you notice that that involved looking at an old text in a fresh new way? In other words, they had read that passage in Amos all their lives. But the Holy Spirit was allowed to say to the church, here is how that text applies to this situation in a way you've never considered before. In other words, they stood under the Word of God, not over it. They didn't come to the Bible saying, I already know what I believe. Now, I'm going to find the Bible to support what I already believe. They came to the Bible and said, even if what I believe has to be changed, I'll change what I believe to be under the Word of God. And then finally, notice that they were more committed to the mission than to their heritage. And this is huge. They chose their commission over their tradition. Precious as it was to them. They didn't suddenly stop loving their heritage. They just believed the mission was more important. And I think the key to understanding the whole text is in verse 19. When James, the brother of Christ, said, We should not make it difficult. For the Gentiles who are turning to God. Circumcision was their preeminent source of identity. Yet they recognized it was a difficulty Gentiles would never be able to overcome. It was an unnecessary barrier to the gospel of Christ for those not of their heritage. Can I share with you? My personal understanding of the mission. I believe the gospel is barrier enough to unregenerate man. The gospel punches the sinner square in the nose. The gospel says to unregenerate man, forget all that I'm okay, you're okay stuff, you're not okay. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You are a helpless sinner. You can't be good enough, you'll never make yourself good enough to be right with God. And your only hope is to confess your wickedness and throw yourself at the mercy of a crucified Jew. No wonder Paul said in Corinthians, the gospel is a scandal, is the Greek word he uses. He says the gospel is an offense 
to unregenerate man. The gospel alone is barrier for the sinner to climb. James says, why would we make it any more difficult than necessary for a sinner to find Christ? Why would we put up any barrier to Christ's message that was not absolutely demanded by faithfulness to Scripture? And yet I believe that's what our heritage and churches of Christ have done with our historical position on instrumental music. I travel all over the fellowship of churches of Christ. I know now that most of our churches don't see this question as a salvation question. In fact, most even admit it could be an aid to kingdom advancement. So why have we not become a both-and network of churches? Why do we stay either-or when for most of us our personal theology hasn't been there for years? I think there are two reasons. I think the most obvious reason is fear. And I'll deal with that in a moment. I do think there's a second reason. I think there's a small minority in our movement that love the heritage more than they love the mission. And I don't mean to be harsh, but I think we need to be honest. I think there are some who are quite content for this fellowship to become stagnant and in decline. And it is. We'll talk about that the third week. As long as their church doesn't change, the fact that their church is getting older and smaller every year doesn't concern them like it should. Now, you need to know that includes people across the theological spectrum. I don't believe that represents most of the members of Churches of Christ that I know. I believe most members want the church to grow. I think they recognize something needs to change. And they have no theological problem with instrumental music. So why do we stay either or? And again, the answer is, we are just so very afraid. What are we afraid of? Let me uh, close our time this morning by trying to identify the seven fears that I think we must face head on to become a both and church. Fear number one is loss of the beauty of the a cappella tradition. Now you need to know at some level the loss of four-part harmony is already happening. You can't go to a youth rally or college campus in this fellowship where anyone's picking up hymn books anymore and reading four parts. That's how most of us grew up. We love that But you do know four-part harmony was not inspired by the Holy Spirit, don't you? It's beautiful. It's been around for about a hundred years, but the church has managed to exist without it before. I hope we don't lose it, but if we do, we can still survive. Alexander Campbell, when he published his first hymn book, wouldn't put notes in it, just words. He was concerned that people would get so caught up in how they sound, they'd forget what they were saying. Now, I would grieve the loss of the a cappella tradition, but I would grieve the elevation of tradition over mission even more. Again, remember, we are not pleading that we get rid of a cappella music. We're pleading that we become a both and church. And if you prefer a cappella praise, God bless you. You should feel good about that. But I'm going to contend... The best way to preserve respect for a cappella praise in future generations is to be a both-and church. Second fear. Instrumental music will discourage congregational singing. I heard that often as a young man. Churches that use instruments don't sing. And then I attended churches that use instruments. That's not true. They do sing. It just sounds so different if you're used to acapella only praise. And then I need to add one more thought here. Many in acapella churches don't 
seen. Now, I hesitate to use this illustration because the last thing I want to do is indict anyone. But over a month ago, I, I met a man in town who was a surgeon, new to our city. And I invited him to our services on Sunday. He was on call that weekend. He said, if I come, I'll come to the 1045 service. And I'll sit on the back row because if my beeper goes off, I've got to leave immediately. I said, okay, well, I'll walk at the back of the service at 1045 and try to find you. So I, I walked to the back. And I walked back to that uh, corner right back there and stood there. And Ryan and the praise team were singing songs that morning. Songs that we know well, familiar songs. And there were probably 50 people in that section. I counted three that were singing. Now, I hate to use that story because everybody in that section is going to move during the 1045 service. (laughs) And so just to... Lighten up on that section. I walked across the back, and I got to tell you, under the balcony at 1045, there were more lips sealed than moving. Meg McKnight used to preach years ago at the Highland Church of Christ in Abilene. He used to argue churches of Christ say they don't believe in choirs. They've had them for years. The front half of the church sings to the back half of the church. Now, I need to tell you there have been times when I did not sing like God wants me to. So I'm indicting myself. My point simply is you can be disengaged from praise whether it's a cappella or instrumental worship. The heart of the matter in worship is always the matter of the heart. Third fear is that the use of instrumental music will encourage the performance aspect of worship. I want you to know, I think that is a valid concern. Whether the worship is a cappella or instrumental. I have been in both contexts where I felt like the leaders were calling more attention to themselves than they were to God. Ironically, most people who raise this objection don't seem to have a problem if the preacher is entertaining. They just don't want the music leader to be. Well, we don't want worship leaders, whether they lead a cappella or instrumental praise, to call attention to themselves. We want them to focus our hearts on God. But let me just add one more thought. Abuse of a practice is never a sound reason for disuse of it. If some churches have abused the notion of accountability partners, that doesn't mean It's never a practice to be tried and used. Because some people hold up their hands in a performance attitude and call attention to themselves doesn't mean elders should pass an edict. Nobody around here can hold up their hands. You don't disallow a biblical practice just because somebody somewhere did it with poor motives. It's still the heart that counts. Okay, fear number four. This is the hardest one, I think. Family conflict. This is very real for some and very painful. I know from personal experience how unsettling this can be. When I came to this congregation 17 years ago, my father did not give me his blessing. My father had been raised with a heavy dose of legalism. Very good man. But the first time he attended our church when I preached here on a Sunday night, back in 1989 during the Christmas season, we brought some fifth and sixth graders up on the steps to sing a couple of songs about Jesus being born. And when that service was over, my father was livid. Because we had a choir in church. And he let me know in no uncertain terms he didn't trust my ability to understand the Bible if I would preach for a church like this. And it hurt me. For five months, we had no communication. At the time, my dad lived in Chicago, worked for Sears at the Tower. I was going to go up to a city close by to speak at a conference, so I called my mother and said, Mom, y'all are going to hear that I'm in the area. Do you want me to come by? She said, yes, come by. Your dad needs to talk to you. 
So I got in. My father was out late on business. He was going to be in the next morning. Mother says, don't leave. Your dad wants to talk to you. And that verse just kept going through my head. Honor your father. Honor your father. And my father walked in. He had a yellow tablet about this thick. Put it on the breakfast table. And his first words were, I owe you an apology. My dad had come home from work since January. Started in Genesis. Read through his whole Bible. Writing down on that yellow tablet every verse on worship in the Bible. And he made this statement. There's nothing in this Bible to forbid groups singing to the rest of the body. And I'll never forget, he said next, And I'm ashamed that for 30 years I believed it was wrong because somebody told me it was in there. And then he said, And just reading my Bible, I don't know why we think instrumental music is wrong. Every now and then I get an email from an encourager who says, why don't you just get out of the church of Christ? And uh, (laughs) Jesus says, pray for your enemies. I have a long prayer list. But um, (laughs) seriously, I'll tell you why. Because this fellowship... Now, please understand, Church of Christ are just a part of the kingdom of God. They're not the entire kingdom of God. But they're the part that God has placed me, asked me to serve. And it is filled with wonderful people like my parents. Wonderful people who want to do what is right and good. And if they get grace-centered teaching, they respond to it. That's why I stay. So people can be liberated from the slavery that never should have been imposed on them. Now, let me say one more thing real quick. It is very important that we show great honor to those who went before us. Whose understandings we may no longer hold. Because their service to Christ was sincere And it was significant. Please, as you talk to parents or grandparents about this, you make it very clear that you honor them, that we honor them. We stand on the shoulders of great men and women. A great foundation has been laid for us. And the things they believed and the way they lived, they did sincerely and faithfully. And they should be honored for that. In no way do we diminish Those who've gone before us. But at the same time, I will tell you, I hope I've raised my own children to so love God and His Word that if they must ever choose between what they think is the leading of God and what their daddy has said, they'll choose the leading of God. Think about it. You wouldn't be here this morning if somebody didn't do that. Somewhere in your past, maybe it was you, maybe it was your parents, maybe it was your great-great-grandparents. Somewhere in your past, somebody chose God over the family. And that's why you're here. Family conflict is tough. I wish I could give you a simple, easy statement to make it go away. I can't. Bathe it in prayer. Love always. Show great honor. Follow God. Fear number five. Loss of Richland Hills members to other churches. Please understand that if we become a both-and church, this will surely happen. Some will leave Richland Hills. They will not be lost to Christ. They will not be lost to the kingdom of God. They will simply go and serve faithfully in either or churches. God Bless them. But you need to know that in the 50-year history of this church, this is an issue that has been faced many times. The threat that people will leave if the leaders here embrace what they believe is the leading of God. When we first, over 30 years ago, launched Singles Ministry, and people said, if you reach out to singles, divorced people will come to your church. And if you let divorced people come to this church, we're going to leave. The elders said, you may have to leave then. We're going to reach out to all. First time we began to use praise teams in this church 15 years ago. Some said, if you do that, we'll leave. 
We still have praise teams. Over 20 years ago, John Jones stood in this pulpit and said, the kingdom of God is larger than the churches of Christ. And some said, if you say that again, we'll leave. He said it again. The history of this church has been, if we've got to choose between truth and keeping the peace, we'll choose truth. Now, if we remain an either-or church, we will also lose members. If we make this change, some will leave. But some, many, have left because we've waited so long to deal with this change. In my judgment, we've already lost way too many over a question that's way too unimportant. Fear number six, loss of influence among other churches of Christ. First, it's fair to ask. Okay, let's... Let's be respectful now because many are going to watch these teachings. We love churches of Christ. And some have said, Rick, if we do this, will we lose influence with them? I think it's fair to ask if that should ever be our goal. Shouldn't our first concern be to do whatever we can do to be the best for the kingdom of God in our community? But second, I think becoming a both-and church could inspire many other churches of Christ to be courageous in their kingdom efforts. And it could help stem the disturbing tide of gifted young leaders who are leaving. And we'll talk about that more. I can only tell you, my email box is flooded with emails from elders and preachers across the country encouraging this church and praising us for the decisions we've made. I know this, if our fellowship stays on the course we're currently on, the future looks bleak. Someone has got to be a leader. And finally, I think some fear the loss of brotherhood identity. Acapella music is our identity. It's our heritage. It's what we are known for. And my answer, I say this with all the love I can muster, but I say it with all the boldness I can muster. If our identity is in the wrong place, it needs to be lost. Our identity is supposed to be in Christ and in His cross. And something's very wrong if that's not enough for us. And I believe there is an unstoppable tide in this fellowship of tens and hundreds of thousands who are tired of being known for what we're against and who are ready to be known for who we're for. Let me uh, close with an illustration about Henry Ford from Amitai Etziani's book, Modern Organizations. He writes, he made the perfect car, a Model T, that ended the need for any other car. He was totally product-oriented. He wanted to fill the world with Model T cars. But when people started coming at him and saying, Mr. Ford, we'd like a different color car, he remarked, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. And then Mr. Edziani writes, that's when the decline of Ford Motor Company began. You know, some churches that are filled with very weak leaders and a very divisive spirit think if we make a big change, we'll fix everything. That's the last thing they need to do. It's only healthy churches that can make changes. We are that church. We've got strong leaders. We have got an amazingly mature membership. We've got a grace-based theology that was around here a long time before I came. We've got a passion for the mission of God that our recent Harvest Sunday contribution proved once again. 
And we've got a 50-year history here that we major in majors, not in minors. The time is right to be both and. Next Sunday, we are going to open the Word of God. And we're going to stand under it and be blessed. Please be praying about next week. God bless you all.